listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Hey, it's good to be with you, Father Tim Grumbach of St. Augustine Parish in Los Angeles, across the street from Sony Studios, as we recently learned, if you're listening. He's with us here. He volunteers so much of his time, not only with us, but with various other apostolates, especially ministering to the young people, young adults. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, we've got some amazing things happening up there in Culver City in Los Angeles. There's a lot of life, and it's awesome to be able to come down here and share that with you all. Today we'll be talking about the question that we should all ask ourselves. What is keeping you from praying? Not just praying to begin with, but maybe even praying more. We'll be asking that question. We'll be talking about whether or not we should be seeking to escape from everything. What that looks like. You hear that phrase, gafia, getting away from it all. We'll also be talking about how We are now being ministered to in so many ways here in the United States by the community that we evangelized for so many years out in Africa as missionaries. Now they are coming back as a great gift for our priest shortage. And they are some of the most orthodox and devout priests popping up across the nation. So we'll be coming up with that and more. Father Tim, I want to get into this topic. A few weeks ago, you and I addressed the issue of video gaming. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're talking about what that looked like for people. If you didn't hear the episode, be sure to go check it out. But one person wrote in to me saying, well, some people use video games the way people use the fantasy fiction world back in the 1960s just to get away from it all Mm -hmm. as a resting point. And I thought that was really fascinating because from a philosophical standpoint, we can take on this question. Am I looking for a distraction Or am I actually entering into a level of rest that will allow me to go deeper in the world? Yeah, and also asking the question about where we find our identity in the midst of that either distraction or place of rest. Ooh, I like that. Right. I think a lot about, and I probably have mentioned it before, but that that pretty cool movie that came out last year, Ready Player One, based off of a fascinating story about a... A virtual world that's been created, you know, called the Oasis, a place that people escape to, um, really to escape the uh, really downtrodden and dystopian world that uh, that the Earth has become. And you know, people will only really find success in this virtual world, and they can create themselves, be whoever they want to be. And so it doesn't become so much a place of rest as much as, yes, a place of escape and a place of distraction from the real world. And the characters begin to realize this and the restlessness that comes with that. And um, it, yeah, I think it's a great commentary on uh, on this idea of getting away from it all into a virtual world, you know, whether it be social media or video games or the science fiction community of the 1960s. And I feel like we need to start by, and by the way, I'm just going to throw this caveat in there because I know Father Tim's on the same boat. I love reading, not just educational books. I love reading. I'm a total nerd for fantasy novels, not sci-fi. I'm totally not a sci-fi person. In fact, I'm recently reading um, Dr. Taylor Marshall. He's a Catholic theologian. His book on the legend of St. George, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm in the second book right now. I love David Eddings. I could go through on authors. I know you too love reading. Yeah, I've found myself into the unfortunate world 
world of Game of Thrones not too long ago. I'm really glad that I've I've found my way out of that. Uh, uh, that can absolutely become an escape and a distraction. But um, I actually grew up reading a lot of Stephen King, uh, Michael Crichton. I don't know how I got myself into those stories in like, fifth and sixth grade, but mm -hmm. I you know understood maybe about twenty percent of what was happening at that point. But um, th those stories really shaped the the way that I you know kind of take in stories and take in these imaginative worlds. Um, but thankfully, uh, over the last few years, really diving more deeply into Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia and these these great Christian mm -hmm. stories. And I and I'll go back to some Stephen King and be like, okay, yeah, this is totally not the same. <laughs> you know. And uh, I'm yeah. just gonna throw that caveat out there because you mentioned it. You you I kind of <laughs> opened that can of worms. But even with the Game of Thrones, you and I did a whole um, show where we talked about right. this problem the problem with Game of Thrones in the movies and also in the books and where people are with reading them and just how inappropriate some of the content can be. And just if you could speak for a second, just where you're at with reading them, yeah. just because I know that's going to, I don't want to cause scandal as we've been addressing. Right, it. right. The, the priest who reads Game of Thrones and you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I'll address that um, because, you know, at the risk of adding just another layer to this discussion about getting away from it all is, you know, is it a place of rest? Is it a place of distraction? Um, either way, it's going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, it's going to be a place of formation. It's going to, you know, form the way that we understand the human person. And uh, there's so much that can be said about video games and, and other you know, ways of experiencing um, these imaginative worlds is that this is going to shape the way that we understand the human person, even if simply uh, desensitizing us to violence or sexuality. And it it takes a tremendous amount of spiritual maturity. I'm not claiming to be there uh, completely, but um, to enter into these worlds, it requires a tremendous spiritual maturity to know, okay, I'm, I'm entering into a story, into a world that's going to be shaping my understanding of the human, the human person, human sexuality, violence against the human person, and then recognizing in my daily life, how is that affecting the people that I interact with, the people mm -hmm. that I see? Do I, do I look at women or men differently because of the ways that the story has mm -hmm. affected me? And so I've taken this so much to prayer and you know, I will say, you know, I'm glad that I finished reading the stories. Right. And, and I think that you, I remember you talking about how you really chose to read Game of Thrones as an educational purpose. Like mm -hmm. everyone's into the show. I can't watch the show. It's not appropriate. Right. Why are people turning to this? And I think that in a sense, as a testament to how St. John Paul the Great loved his life, people would criticize him for having all of this communist literature, mm -hmm. but you need to know your opponent. You need to know where they're at, but you can't suddenly conform to the way of thinking and living that they're in. You just need to understand. And St. Thomas Aquinas was great at this mm -hmm. kind of posing. He knew his his opponents so well he was able to think even better than them in his arguments right right and um, we also have to you know have a wide range of what we're reading mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's important right to um, to know what our opponents are reading and thinking and writing and, and everything like that so um, Game of Thrones that whole world that creative world uh, is something that I won't recommend cannot endorse yeah but I've been through the stories and uh, you know enjoyed certain elements of the stories and others had to you know skip over or 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 just say this is this is not helpful for me for yeah. my spirituality for my development for my formation for who i am as a human person and and wrestling with the way that that was trying to shape me as i was reading the yeah. stories you know, as with any movies yeah. you know I, you know being a big stephen king fan we've got these uh the, the it movies out <laughs> and um uh, and knowing that you know this stuff probably is not very good for my uh for my soul to be taking in let's be honest you know in the eternal perspective 
how helpful is it for me to uh, to take in that kind of horror to have those kinds of images of well i won't go into detail um, you know things that you know will be hard to forget is that good for me mm. you know, ultimately no it's not going to be good for me and i can't just use the excuse of well i'm trying to stay in touch with the culture right you know, some things we just need to you know and not in a, a matter of you know blissful ignorance but there are simply things that we do not mess with that we do not let into our hearts and into our families and into our souls that it requires a sacrifice mm. you know the you know the to sacrifice fomo you know that fear of missing <laughs> out you know i think that may be one of the most dramatic sacrifices that we're asked to make these days it, it seems silly but but we're called to right? more often than not anymore yeah, to be okay with missing out on something yeah. i think you know some of the saints said the greatest saints were willing to miss out on things you know, look at Therese, you know, she wanted to be a missionary, but she missed out on that. Mm -hmm. And now she's the patroness of missionaries because of her prayer life uh, that seemed hidden away from the world, you know, and her sanctity and her sainthood is worth so much more than even those experiences that she would have had as a missionary. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timory. We're talking about this whole idea of getting away from it all. I want to come to the question of is a distraction in and of itself good? And if we look at, you know, the full breadth of philosophy, actually distractions aren't good. We shouldn't be looking for things to distract us. Uh, we shouldn't even necessarily be looking for something to escape into. There's a difference between distraction and escape and rest. Rest that allows us to be fully who we are rather than often distraction and escape. We're trying to be something other than what we are and forget the world and be detached from it versus rest recognizes the world and the problems and the joys are present and that you're still who you're called to be, but you're taking delight in something. Yeah, that it finds its root in the beautiful image of the Sabbath, you know, just scripturally and understanding of the Sabbath is, you know, we may treat it, you know, my day off is just when I escape from my daily life. Uh, but from the very beginning, understanding, you know, God created the world in six days and on you know, the sixth, seventh day, he rested from his work. You know, it, God was not trying to escape from his work. He was looking to rest in it, to delight in it, and to so to invite humanity to rest and delight in creation during that time of Sabbath, not to escape from it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the what we may call distractions are not meant to uh, be escapes, but it's meant to be a place of rest and mm -hmm. recovery and delighting and rejoicing in the, the creative works that we've been invited into. And even that recovery isn't an escape. You know, I think it was sometimes at night, you know, my brain's still going, my body's still active. So I read, you know, I'll read before I go to bed. And sometimes if I get into theology, either I'm not going to process it because my brain's not there, or I'm going to get so entrenched in it, I'm not going to be able to sleep. So I'll read, you know, I mentioned I'm reading the Sword and Serpent series right now. And that helps to kind of clear the mind, let my mind rest, think about something. But at the same time, what are we thinking about? Is it something good? Yeah, I think a lot of people, instead of just trying to rest, they're escaping into Netflix and then losing all self-control. You know you've been there where you watch one after another after another of that episode. Yeah. And, you know, how does our rest help us grow in virtue as well? And, you know, I cannot stand the term, you know, binge watching a TV <laughs> show. I, I think that's so unhealthy. Just yeah. the practice of it as well. The but, joking about know, it even. Right, right. And the, the marketing by it to say, yeah. oh, this is... You know, Netflix, I think, still has, I've been off it for a couple of weeks now, but Netflix still has, I think, uh, a category for like binge-worthy TV shows, or that might be Prime, oh, really? Amazon Prime or something, but they call them binge-worthy. And 
when we think of a very real, um, you know, medical, you know, um, uh, you know illness, uh, uh, something that's really, you know, tearing our culture apart of, you know, people who binge drink, we, we you know, binging and purging, you know, this um, binging is so unhealthy and yet we joke about it. We even use it for marketing. So I can't stand, you know, not only the practice, but the use of that term. Um, does that, is that helping us grow in virtue? Is it helping us to grow in rest? And ultimately though, um, I've come across this reality that the Sabbath is uh, meant to be a time of rest and rejoicing and delighting in our work and the, the creation around us. But it's also as Jesus, you know, fulfilled the Sabbath time in and time again, um, uh, through his miracles on the Sabbath was, you know, it's meant to be a place of healing. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be a place of forgiveness. And so if our Sabbath doesn't have anything to do with healing and forgiveness and rest, recovery, rejuvenation and rejoicing, then it's just a distraction and it's just an escape. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Father Tim Grumbach is with me. We're talking about the idea of getting away from it all and whether we're looking for escape and distraction or whether we're looking for rest and delight and we're kind of following that Sabbath rest that the church calls us to so that we can go deeper be more present. And I was thinking about, for me, some of the things that I've really worked on. I'd love to hear the things you've worked on, um, really recognizing, okay, there are certain things that I just love. And maybe you're listening and you know how to play the violin and you haven't picked the violin up in three, four, five years. You love playing the violin. Maybe you feel a little rusty or nervous about playing even. It's been so long. These are things that are an element in some ways of rest, uh, of delighting in something. And so I challenge you to think of what your activities might be, those joy activities, things you love. I know, you know, for some, it's a matter of just getting exercise in. For some, it's getting more sleep. For some, it's reading that good novel or taking that dance class you've always wanted to take or want to get back into after all these years. Father Tim, what is it for you? Well, as you know, I don't take my day off very well um, <laughs> I know, from time here. to time. <laughs> From time to time, I will um, take my day off uh, very well. And uh, music has a big part of it. Um, so I've got a, a number of different instruments lying around in the rectory. And, um, you know, banjo is usually the first one that I'll pick up. I've got a, a mandolin and stand-up bass is a favorite of mine. And so just to t- take some time and, and, you know, play some praise and worship music, just, you know, hidden away, um, even take it down into the chapel and just uh, just pray through music. And it's, it's something that really rejuvenates me. And it, the beautiful thing is it has taken years to cultivate the skill that I do have. You know, I'm, I'm no expert at anything, more of a jack of all trades and a master of none. But I've gotten to the point where I, I'm not having to think my way through what I'm doing when I do that. So I can just rejoice in the skills that I've developed. And so that becomes that Sabbath rest of mm-hmm. I am... I'm still doing something, but I'm rejoicing in the skills that have been developed and the ability to do something somewhat effortless, effortlessly, uh, not like speaking, <laughs> effortlessly in order to um, just rejoice in the skills and the gifts that God has given to me. And I think that's a real element of rest and Sabbath. Anyone who's listening, I actually want to recommend a book to go deeper on the whole issue. There's a philosopher by the name of Joseph Paper who wrote a book called um, Oh my gosh, it just slipped on, on leisure. On leisure. Yeah. Thank you. I had it in my head and went gone on leisure. But that book on leisure by Joseph Pieper is excellent. And it's going to make you kind of reconsider what does that look like from a philosophical standpoint? Highly, highly recommend it. You can find it on Amazon. 
In the meantime, I want to talk about another topic. You know, we talk a lot about character development and how important it is. And at the same time, juxtaposed to that, we hear this topic of suffering that is so prevalent within the Catholic tradition. I mean, just look at our main symbol of Christ suffering on the cross and what that means to us. Yet in the modern world, we want to step away from suffering. We want to say, why should I care that someone else is suffering? Why why should I care to allow that suffering to go on? Why can't I stop it? Well, the reality is, is that suffering is how we are tried. And in fact, suffering is where the sometimes the mental anguish and the self-control and the ideas about what's going on are united with the reality of what the body's experiencing. And there's this body soul experience that is perfected and can allow for the perfection of Christian perfection, essentially. Yeah. And, and perfection through suffering. This is something that doesn't make any sense to somebody who misunderstands the cross from the beginning. So when and the world doesn't have the language or the experience of Christ on the cross, it's going to greatly misunderstand it when St. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I fill up what is lacking the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. It sounds like uh, you know, this masochist, you know, that he enjoys pain, he enjoys suffering. Um, but to understand the cross is to understand that it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. And St. Paul isn't saying that something was lacking in the, you know, in what happened on the cross, but he's saying it's so powerful because it still reaches into our present. That, you know, we have an experience of the cross that the suffering is not just our own, but it's something that um, we choose to embrace and is probably one of the most powerful resources of prayer that we have in the church. Yeah. Just um, the last couple of days have been really powerful for me to you know, in, experience the suffering of you know, some of my parishioners and to get to go visit them at hospitals. And um, one of them was a, um, you know, I won't go into too much detail. It's their story, it's their suffering. It's hard to speak of someone else's suffering. Um, but one of them is a, a parishioner who's been so involved in confirmation and catechism and has taught so many people literally how to pray, how to say the words. And uh, just about a month ago, um, something happened where she had a, a stroke and she's been in the hospital ever since. And, you know, it's taken me this long to actually go and visit her. And that's, you know, that's my own thing. And so I, I just wanted to go and like apologize to her and say, I'm sorry it took me this long, but she's at the point and she's recovering and God bless that. And, you know, please pray for her. And, um, but, you know, all she can do right now is open her eyes and look. She can't communicate in any other way. And it's just, it's, um, you know, the world would look at that and say, look at what your God has done to this person who's been so faithful to him. And we as a church can say, and it's hard to, you know, invite her into this. She has to make the choice to embrace that suffering and let it be an experience of the cross of Christ. I can't make her do that. And, you know, it felt strange even telling her that, you know, she has the opportunity to do this. We need her prayers. Like, of course, we're praying for you. You know this. But more than anything right now, your, your suffering right now is a gift for our church. As weird as that sounds, if you misunderstand the cross, you're going to misunderstand what that means. But almost one of the most powerful resources we have as a church are the suffering parishioners in hospitals and in homes who've almost been neglected or forgotten because they can't be there on Sundays. Mm -hmm. you know, these people who are faithful in their suffering and in the cross that Jesus carries with them. You know, John Paul II would go and visit you know, refugee camps and hospitals and, and he would go and find the people who the world would say are worthless. And he would tell them, you know, pray for the church, pray for your Pope. Mm -hmm. you know, and they're all thinking, you're the Pope, you gotta be praying for us. And the reality was, you know, God hears the cry of the poor. 
you know, Psalm 34 and their prayers are so powerful and we need to be able to tap into that and, um, you know, not just tell them, Hey, your suffering is great, but walk with them in their suffering and ask for their prayers. Cause they're on a pilgrimage, even when they can't speak, if they can hear us, they can pray. And I can't even imagine what that's like to not be able to communicate, but to know that, um, one of the greatest resources we have is I don't even want to use that word resources. One of the most powerful things that we have in the church are this, those who are suffering in the church. Um, the, the cross is not just something that happened 2000 years ago. It's, it's reaching into the, the, the most powerful moments of the church right now. And there's a reason why it has such a huge impact mm-hmm. on us. There's a reason why we look to the cross and all of our afflictions. And I look at, you know, seeing John Paul, the great, his pontificate, the end of his pontificate for a number of years shows us how to suffer well and to endure it from the end. And is there any surprise that he wrote on human suffering? You know, the impact, the redemptive element of suffering. I look at St. Gianna Mola, mm-hmm. who imagined the suffering knowing that not only her child might live, but she might not live uh, as she was going through her last pregnancy because of her illness. Yeah. And the idea of her child being motherless and her other children being motherless and all the various elements. And we could go on naming saint after saint who was brutally tortured, who endured great suffering and sickness. Yet their characters were purified through all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We could go on and on with the saints. I mean, just recently we celebrated St. Peter Claver mm-hmm. who called himself the slave to the slaves. And, you know, he would meet the slave boats in South America as they, they came in, you know, in the, the Spanish slave trade, you know, not even wait for them to come to their shelters if they had any, but he would go right onto the boats and he would be uh, caring for their physical needs, but then preaching the gospel to them, baptizing them. He claims to have you know baptized 300,000 uh, slaves into the Christian faith. And ultimately the last four of his years, of four years of his life were spent suffering in bed hidden away and actually being abused by an ex-slave. So the story tell, story goes, and he says, you know, I accept this as the will of God. Um, I'm suffering for my sinfulness. You know, only a saint can be able to say that and say, this is so unjust, but I will receive this as, you know, through the permissive hands of, of God as something that is transforming me. Cause you know, you may think I'm a saint, but I still need to be transformed by suffering. Well, think about what you are going through, small or great, or as great as it may feel to you, that difficult thing that's preoccupying your mind, the pain that's preoccupying your body. Think of the opportunity. You could be an absolute grouch and angry and resentful because of whatever it is that you're experiencing, or you could have self-control and be patient with what it is you're suffering and an answer to whatever that prayer might be or the situation someone else might be experiencing. Mm -hmm. You can choose to be joyful. You can choose that in the midst of whether it's a mental or physical anguish to give of yourself, to help others, to still engage in conversations when you don't even want to talk to someone else. Yeah. And I find it's, oh, it's so easy to say that it's the truth. Right. And it's so easy, easy, relatively easy. Uh, to teach that and to share that with those who are suffering. Um, But it has to be every person's choice to receive that suffering. 
But I think a lot of people aren't even aware that it, it, there is the opportunity there. You right. know, a lot of people don't even realize, like, I can wake up at the beginning of the day and at the very beginning of my day, I can say, I offer this day mm-hmm. for right. this person or for this intention, all of the joy, all of the sorrow, all yeah. of the suffering, I offer it for them. Mm-hmm. That suddenly gives purpose and meaning to your life and it encourages you to be better. Yeah. And day by day, that's a growth in virtue. Yeah, The first day you make that prayer of, you know, abandonment in the morning, you're making your morning offering of your, your whole self to God. You, know, you may not feel anything and you may spend most of your day forgetting about that and not living that way, but you do that day in and day out. You know, the growth of virtue happens uh, very slowly. As I've heard it described, it's it's more like a vitamin than a steroid. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen immediately, but it, you know, day by day, making that morning offering, just giving yourself over to the Lord every day, you may not feel it at first. But as another saying goes, fake it till you make it, be transformed by it uh, as it's happening. And I think too, that when you're intentional about something, your conscience is going to kick in more often. So you may fall, you will fall, I guarantee it. But you might be a little quicker to that remorse, quicker to amend your ways, quicker to change what you're doing for the glory of God. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Father Tim Grumbach is with me, and we're talking about what keeps you from praying. What's getting in the way? I hear people say all the time that I wish I could pray more or I want to pray more. And so I think the first thing is, is why don't you just do it? And I think sometimes people go there, but then they don't know what to do Mm -hmm. or or they let everything come in. We're going to be talking about that right now. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's most daunting I can say for me is to look at some of the greatest saints be like, I want to pray like that saint. I want to, I want to spend all night lying down on a chapel floor like John Paul II. Mm -hmm. And I find myself thinking, well, why don't I? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think right from the beginning, I can say, it's because I don't want to. That's that's my answer <laughs> to this question is what, what keeps me from praying? It's because like, I don't want to. I think I want to want to. So there's a start there. But um, I, I'm convinced that, um, yes, it's it's the Holy Spirit that's going to be praying through me. When I can't pray, I tell God, you've got, you're the one who's got to be doing it right now. And I'm just going to sit here and, and, and try to learn from you and let you pray through me. But that when I want to be like a John Paul II, when I want to be like, you know, Mother Teresa, when I want to pray like them, I know it took them their lifetime to learn how to do that. But I also recognize that, you know, it's not all my effort that's required. It's got to be the Holy Spirit praying through me. St. Paul says, you know, we don't know how to pray as we ought. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, we have to invoke him, please make make my prayer. Right. But as far as just showing up, you know, I'm brutally honest with myself when I say this, because I don't want to. And I want that to change. Mm-hmm. So it's it's there's a big difference between wanting to and at least wanting to want to. But I, I think that a lot of people, that might be what it comes down to, is that we say we want to pray, but if we truly wanted to, we would be there. We would at least be showing up. And that doesn't mean we need to know how to pray like those great saints. But it, it means that we begin by just showing up and admitting, I don't know how to pray like them, God. Teach me. And, and I think from showing up, then we have to start with tempering those interior desires or those thoughts from going out of control and distracting us. You know, I, 
I think always remembering to pray, okay, Jesus, every time we get distracted, say the name of Jesus. And I remember a priest saying, even if you said the name of Jesus a hundred times during mass or 200 or 500 times during mass for every time you get distracted, you're at least saying his name once you're pondering him. You're, you're choosing to return back to him, offering him that ground to enter into. How about praying a rosary during a mass? Huh? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, at least we're praying, right? Um, <laughs> we're not supposed to be praying the rosary during mass. We're supposed to be meditating on the mass, not meditating well, on the rosary. Well, well you know, they're, they're, the the meditation of the rosary is the, the greatest Bible study, and it is uh, a meditation on the way that Our Lady offered herself to the Lord and uh, and how we can do the same in mass. And so, um, you know, sometimes we're a little bit hard on those who decide to pray the rosary during mass, but, uh, you know, we, we, we can be invited more deeply into the mystery of the Eucharist on the altar, that's for sure. So, but... Yeah, you know, tempering those uh, those distractions as as we were talking about, you know, um, uh, distractions that get in the way of uh, our being able to rest, our being able mm-hmm. to uh, recover, rejoice in the gifts that God has given to us. Um, you know, how do we experience prayer in that way? You know, pr- our prayer will be filled with distraction you know, unless you are, well, you're dead and you're already in heaven. Your prayer will be full of distractions. So uh, I think one of the main ways to temper those distractions is to recognize them as distractions and allow them to be there. Just don't go riding away with them. You know, sometimes God will bring distractions into our prayer um, to help us realize that they are indeed distractions. Um, what it is that you know our disordered inclinations, our attractions, the, the things that, um, that we desire more than prayer, sometimes God will let them be there. And our first thought would be, God, destroy this distraction, obliterate it, get rid of it. But you know, the reality is maybe God's the one that has put it there to bring it to our attention so that we can bring it to him and let him transform it. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timory. I think sometimes the reason the distraction can be there is it's something that we're avoiding. We're not pondering. We're, we're not allowing to sit with, or maybe we're not taking it before God. And I think some of the reason why we don't pray more, what's keeping us from praying more is fear. Mm. What will I find once I sit in that silence? What will I have to think about? And sometimes it's that fear and maybe it's that this avoidance of going to reconciliation, going to confession. And if I sit long enough and I'm quiet, I'm going to be reminded of why I'm avoiding going to reconciliation. I'm going to be reminded of that sin. I know I don't want to commit, but I'm just stewing it and committing over and over again. I'm stirring into that way of living. Yeah, and there's going to be some discernment required, and that's a lot of hard work when we're sitting in that silence. And we don't do silence well in our (laughs) culture. We have found so many distractions. Um, But then when we do encounter the the silence is how do we hear that voice that's speaking to us? You know, because we could be hearing uh, the the enemy trying to convince us that we are defined by the things we don't want to hear. We are defined by those things about ourselves we don't like. And then we see those in other people and we begin to uh, spend our time in prayer judging other people and not ourselves. And But then the, the true voice of God is not going to be so accusatory, right? You know, Hashatanas, right? Uh, the uh, uh, the Satan is the one who accuses. He is the mm-hmm. accuser, and so if our sins are coming up against us, uh, the, the parts of our lives that we like the least are coming up in our silence. How do we hear them spoken to us? Uh, in the merciful voice of God, who wants to meet us in that silence and call us out of that sinfulness, or the uh, the enemy's voice, who wants to d- define us, identify us. 
by those sins. And so there's some discernment required. And I think, you know, again, let me speak for myself. That keeps me from prayer a lot too, because I know that you know, when that's going to happen, prayer is going to take a lot of work and it's easier for me to just go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, with that, it's important that we're throwing ourselves into an atmosphere, finding some silence, finding the proper posture to prayer. You know, there's been this revitalization. I think some of our great leaders to kneel when we're praying mm-hmm. because it, it's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's painful sometimes not in physically kneeling, but just getting our brains over the fact that I could be sitting down, but I'm actually going to stay here kneeling. And from there, we're called to enter into silent prayer, but some of us can't even enter into that silent prayer with no scripture until we've first continued to form the mind. And this is where our Lord is speaking to us through scripture. And some will say, well, I don't know what to read in in scripture. I've read the wrong book. Maybe you chose Numbers or Deuteronomy and it's throwing you off. You know, There's some good stuff in there. There is some good stuff, but a good place to start is always the daily mass reading Mm -hmm. for the day or or choosing maybe you read the Psalms beginning to end or the gospel of Luke, whatever it might be, you're choosing one thing and maybe you're narrowing it down to one sentence. I love working with people uh, doing what's called Lexio Divina, where you take a scripture passage and then you work on meditating and breaking it down to that one word. How is our Lord speaking to me here and now in this one word? Yeah. I'd love to say a little bit more about kneeling too. Yes. Um, that you know, we are not just you know bodies with souls, and we're not just souls trapped in bodies, but we are you know in embodied souls, you know, in, in souled bodies. It, we are so connected to our posture that you know posture is so important to prayer. Um, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger beautifully writes in the spirit of litur- spirit of the liturgy a, a couple of different images of prayer in the ancient church: prayer on the knees. Uh, speaking of Saint James in Jerusalem, that the legend is that his knees were calloused and hard because he spent so much time kneeling in prayer, um, not just for himself, but for his brothers and sisters who were being persecuted and you know, ending up giving his own life. Uh, and then there's another image from the Desert Fathers. I can't remember the name of the father, but um, an image of the, of the devil appearing to him. Actually, it says that God allowed the devil to appear to this Desert Father, who's you know, a hermit and by himself and in prayer. And he says that this was, it was a tall, lanky, dark creature that had no knees. That's, that's the most terrifying <laughs> part of the image. You imagine just these, these, le- these kneeless legs, but it was this profound image of, of, it was a disgusting image of a creature with no knees that is uh, not only unwilling, but unable to kneel before the majesty of God. And that was, the, that was the distinguishing feature of Satan for wow. this desert father was uh, a creature with no knees. And it's interesting. I laugh because sometimes we create this imagery in our minds that is so frightening and sometimes so ridiculous, yet there's a purpose for it. Mm-hmm. There's a purpose, a kneeless creature, one who cannot bow before God. Right, right. Yeah. So our ability to kneel gives us great dignity. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes in the, the, the liturgy uh, over the last you know few decades, a, a lot of the kneeling has been taken out of it. And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation for another day. Um, but let's, you know, rediscover the beauty of kneeling and the dignity that it gives us that we can kneel before the majesty of God, that we are not creatures so hardened by our own pride and sinfulness that we no longer have knees. Well, and I feel like sometimes when we sit down to pray, we start looking around, well, who can I talk to? I think about, you know, the classic before mass, people sit down, we start looking around, who can we talk to? What can I look at? We're looking, it's like sitting down sometimes invites us in to look for distractions. But when we kneel, often our greatest distraction is our desire to sit down. Mm 
in mm-hmm. that desire. There's something that can be learned in that moment. But I also want to throw some resources out there. You know, ask yourself, what is keeping you from praying? Maybe you need to sit in the chapel and write down, well, I'm making this excuse. I'm afraid of this. Or maybe you're looking for a resource, some resources. Read the mass readings for the day. Buy the book for the liturgy of the hours. Buy the manual of prayers. The manual of prayers is fantastic. Or pick a saint's book. Choose someone to inspire you and take that saint's book to the chapel with you. Yeah, bring them with you to the chapel. You know, you you have their writings, but you also have their prayers right. and their presence because when you're there before the Lord Jesus, you know, what king doesn't bring his court with him? And so we, we get caught up thinking of the saints sometimes as just cheerleaders on the sidelines. Uh, not to knock cheerleaders on the sidelines, but that <laughs> that they actually get into the game with us and they're drawing us uh, closer and closer to victory. That they're they're there with us. And uh, you know, uh, on another practical note too is you know how do we grow in prayer? Find the right time of the day. Right. If, if you're trying to force it, if you're exhausted at night and you fall asleep in prayer, good. Rest in the Lord. But also be aware, he may be calling you to another time of the day so you could be more attentive. For a different prayer position. Sometimes I find if I lay down to pray, I fall asleep. Yeah. If I pray before kneeling or sitting yeah. or yeah. somewhere else outside of bed, it's yeah. helpful. Yeah, some really good practical considerations. is Just find what works for you, but believe in the tradition of the church. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Father Tim Grumbach is here with me. We're going to be diving into the renewal of the church and renewal of the priesthood and some thoughts that you have on that. We want to start by talking about really the renewal that we're seeing in the church. For example, in Portland, Oregon, uh, it's fascinating. Father Tim, you mentioned this to me when we were planning the show on the phone, that for so long, Americans, Europeans all over, Catholics were traveling to Africa to evangelize, to bring the Catholic faith. And now what's fascinating is we're experiencing this priest shortage. We're now seeing priests from Nigeria all over Africa coming here to the United States and they're Orthodox and and they're teaching what the church teaches and they're challenging us to more. Yeah, definitely challenging us. I remember growing up in my home parish there was an African priest, beautiful African priest who preached from the pulpit. We had gotten so used to the priests coming down to us, but he was up in the pulpit, the ambo itself. And he had very strong words against sinfulness and our sinfulness. And we're thinking, he actually got a lot of flack for that. <laughs> um, you know, we all felt that it was such a harsh homily, like how, could, how dare he say we're sinful and that <laughs> we, we may experience some kind of punishment for our sin. You know, he preached the gospel to us and I, I'm grateful for that. You know, at the time, growing up, I was like, wow, that was different. And I don't know if that will be well received. But it it was really, you know, preparing my heart to see what, what needs to change, where I need conversion of heart. And the courage to preach that way when I need to. You know, I don't think I preach quite as forcefully as, as that one moment. But it was a good reminder that the, the cultures that we have evangelized are coming back to evangelize us and reminding us of orthodoxy and right. conversion and, and the how the gospel isn't, always cuddly and cute, um, but, but sometimes, you know, tables are turned over. And so it's a, it's a beautiful experience to be able to work with a lot of these priests too here you know, in Los Angeles 
and seeing the great sacrifices they've made to leave their home to be missionaries to us who in some ways have forgotten our ways. And, you know, we need to be very careful not to think like, well, they're stuck in the past, but they're being missionaries to those who once were missionaries. Well, what's interesting to me, I was reading the story out of Portland, Oregon, where there is a priest who I'm not, I'm going to to mess up his name. If you want to try for, I think it's Father Kufuriji from Nigeria. And he's come into this parish that has really gotten into introducing rainbow vestments for the priest, uh, unsanctioned changes to the mass, adding these random statements in the middle of the mass, letting the parishioners just speak in the middle of mass, uh, unnecessary signage and folk music that isn't quite as reverent in, or should we say liturgically approved. And so essentially he's cleaning up some of the liturgical abuses with the permission, of course, of the bishop and the bishops come out completely supporting Father Kufuriji, and it's been interesting because the parishioners, and might I add, it's the elderly parishioners that have been heavily protesting him, standing up and screaming in the middle of the Eucharistic um, part of the Mass, in the middle of the transfiguration, I mean, the, sorry, transubstantiation, the entire thing. I'm just so shocked by the disrespect. Yeah, let's not forget to mention that they also, um, these Caucasian parishioners coming up against a, an African priest and they came in singing, We Shall Overcome uh, <laughs> in the middle of Mass. And so it, it you know, the optics are not great. Uh, maybe there was something that we missed there, but. Um, Oh, God. They, so not self-aware, yeah, though. Right. There's, there's even audio of them uh, accusing this this new pastor, this, this uh, Nigerian priest of, quote, abusing the parishioners by making these changes. Again, optics aren't great when we're speaking of uh, you know, the, the scourge of sexual abuse throughout the church right now to claim that someone who is, according to the church's orthodoxy and teachings, is you know, bringing reverence into the Eucharist and uh, removing elements that are foreign to the liturgy itself that they're somehow putting it on par with the abuse that's happening, um, has happened throughout the church and has caused such great scandal. It's um, uh, hardly to be compared. And one of the things that stood out to me about this story is that, and we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we were together, Father Tim, that unfortunately there have been a lot of liturgical abuses that have taken place um, that are not approved or not what the church teaches, what the liturgy looks like. And suddenly you may have a priest that's kind of cleaning up shop and is trying to bring this focus yet again back to our Lord. And sometimes that's done just by simplifying things. And sometimes we find ourselves a little uncomfortable because it's not the way that we've been used to the liturgy functioning. And and so we get angry or resentful or just change parishes as a result. I want to challenge you to be more open to not only understanding what it is that's being changed, but to understanding this need for simplicity and renewal within the church, which you've been working a lot on the issue of recently. Yeah, the idea of renewal uh, in the church, but also in the priesthood. Uh, I've been convinced over this last year, year and a half or so, that a lot of the rest, well, the renewal of the church is going to happen through restoration. Honestly, liturgical restoration. I've used the word renewal at times, but I, I think that you know, diving into the beauty of uh, certain traditions that have been lost, uh, in a certain sense of the the baby being thrown out with the bathwater, so they would say. Uh, there are some beautiful traditions that have been thrown out. Again, a whole other conversation liturgically. But uh, I'm convinced that a, a lot of the healing that's going to come 
through this experience of the scandal will come through certain liturgical restorations and renewals and a new, renewed understanding of what liturgy is, who we are in, in the midst of liturgy and you know who's at the center of it. Well, it's not us, it's mm-hmm. Christ. Christ is at the center of it being offered to the Father and we experience that through the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of renewal that's co- going to be on its way. And the priests of Los Angeles, we just recently had a great opportunity to talk more about this, to experience some of this renewal. Our Archbishop Jose Gomez called us out to the desert some time ago to spend a few days together, which is incredible to think, you know, we had about 350 or 400 priests there together. Most of us, you know, just plain don't get to see each other as often as we would like, you know, the busyness of parish life, the how gigantic the archdiocese is. So it was time for us just to get away and spend some time in convocation and to talk about renewal. We actually tried this last year, about a month after the scandals began to really break with uh, McCarrick and with the uh, Pennsylvania grand jury report. But we decided, the Archbishop decided it would be better for us to stay with our parishes and not go out to a resort to spend some time in the desert uh, away from our parishes at, at a time like that. We were just needed there. And well, we finally got the opportunity to spend some time. And one of the things that struck me most about our need to continually seek renewal in the priesthood and you know, a, a restoration of what it means to be you know, offered with Christ on the altar as priest, as victim was a saying that that came up during the week. It was that uh, when looking at the scandals, uh, we're not to distance ourselves from them, but to carry them. Uh, It was a very powerful way of speaking about it because our first instinct might be to look at the scandals as uh, as men who are trying to be faithful priests. And, you know, we have our failings, our our misgivings, our, our, our faults and failures. And to say, well, how awful it is that those priests out there um, did those terrible things, but I'm innocent. Why do I have to be a victim here? Why do I have to you know, struggle with my priesthood because of what those men did? And that's not only self-serving, but it's also self-exalting to say, oh, I had nothing to do with that. That's not me. But it was pointed out to us, you know, don't distance yourself, carry it. You know, Jesus on that cross didn't look at the thieves next to him and say, oh, no, no, don't identify me with these guys. I didn't do anything. Why am I up here suffering because of them? No, he carried that with them. Uh, even invited one of them into paradise with him that very day. So as priests, uh, one of the main things for renewal will be that understanding of the the scandals, you know, not to let our first instinct be to distance ourselves from those who are suffering in them, but to carry that cross, um, not, not necessarily as victims, but as priest victims, offering ourselves along with Jesus in the midst of it. When we talked about suffering earlier, you know, the scandal in the church is an opportunity for all of us, but especially you as a priest to recognize it, offer yourself, you know, when I think sometimes people may not understand the language too, as a victim and not as like, oh, I'm a victim, I've suffered, but as I am the sacrificial victim, I'm choosing to lay myself down. You know, I think about, I was just reading the book of Judith recently and it was talking about how, I mean, look, Abraham was tried. Abraham was encouraged to offer up his only son son Isaac and Isaac we understand if you read the text he he carried the the wood he carried everything he at a certain point was recognizing that he was the sacrifice he made himself allowed for himself to be the possible victim the sacrifice there being offered up and so as we're carrying just the wound that is just festering in the church offer it up recognize the fault 
and be prayerful through it. And sometimes it is through the greatest pain as the book of Judith recognizes it's through trial that suddenly we become stronger and closer to God. Yeah. And one of the most powerful voices about this idea of being a priest victim, you know, like Isaac and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, you know, carrying the wood of his own sacrifice at the father's command, very well likely up the same hill that the voice, you know, coming from, uh, you know, venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who said in the seminary, they taught us how to be good priests, but they did not teach us how to be good priest victims. Mm. And so to enter into Christ's priesthood, you know, as uh, the, the great German Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You know? mm. But we know that's not where the story ends. And so praise God for this priestly renewal, this opportunity for renewal and restoration in the church as a time that is, you know, we know this isn't the end of the story, that the accident, the, the brokenness is not the end of the story, that the resurrection is. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please head over to radiotrending.com so that you don't miss an episode. Browse through the different episodes. You can head to the search page, type in a topic, whatever it might be. There's probably an episode that we've done covering that topic. So just type that in the search bar at radiotrending.com where you can also find links to my guest, Father Tim Grumbach, and his social media. You can find him at Father Tim Grumbach on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guests, visit radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 